Hello and welcome to January's Lucina from Archives of Disease in Childhood. In Lucina uh, this month, the first article we deal with um, it relates to outcomes after cancer in pregnancy. Now, as paediatricians, we sometimes see children whose mothers had cancer during pregnancy, and not surprisingly, they're very anxious about possible detrimental effects of the disease itself or the treatment that they may have had um, before the child was born and whether that might possibly cause problems much later during the child's life. A case-controlled study recently published from Belgium in the New England Journal of Medicine should be reassuring. They recruited 129 children whose mothers had cancer during pregnancy. 10% of these mothers had only received surgery during pregnancy, 32% had received chemotherapy, and 37% both of these. 8% had received therapy in some combination. However, 11% of them received no treatment. They also recruited some controlled infants whose mothers were perfectly healthy for comparative purposes. What they found, perhaps surprisingly, was that congenital malformation rates were comparable to the general population, and between the uh, control groups and the uh, cancer in pregnancy groups, they didn't differ at all. They took it further and they looked for evidence of um, adverse effects on brain development, and they found that using standard Bailey scales, neurodevelopment was no different at 18 and 36 months between the two groups. Now, as uh, oncologists will know, uh, some cancer drugs can be cardiotoxic, particularly the anthracyclines, so in theory they could have had an adverse effect on the fetal heart. They did echocardiograms for that reason and found reassuringly that there was no difference. In fact, the only difference they found was that there was a greater risk of the babies of the mothers with cancer being small for gestational age, but not more likely to be premature. However, all the women in this study develop cancer in the second and third trimester. We don't really have any information about the effects of the diagnosis in the first trimester, which is perhaps the most important part. The second paper relates to steroids for septic arthritis. Now, as acute paediatricians know, for quite a long time now, we've known that giving steroids in bacterial meningitis uh, reduces some of the complications, presumably because of reduction in the swelling of the meninges. By analogy, could it help in the swelling one sees in septic arthritis, where the synovial membrane can get very swollen? Um, some researchers from Israel uh, had already done a small randomised controlled trial, and which showed some benefit, and then they looked in a non-randomised manner at a much greater number of children at their institution, and they looked at, they identified from their records 116 children with strong clinical evidence of septic arthritis, of whom 26 um, received dexamethasone. Uh, the groups were comparable, although, as I say, it wasn't randomised. The dexamethasone group has significantly shorter duration of pain and movement limitation, fever, and hospital stay. The CRP dropped more rapidly. Um, however, only 22% had definite microbiologically proven septic arthritis because they didn't do aspiration of the joint fluid in all cases. This cast some doubt on the validity of the trial because it's possible that some of them didn't genuinely have septic arthritis and might indeed have had a type of autoimmune arthritis, such as juvenile idiopathic arthritis, presenting atypically, and therefore one would expect them to improve with steroids anyway. So I don't think any conclusions could be drawn at this stage, and a lot more work will need to be done with bigger numbers and proper RCTs before this becomes routine. Now, the next um, series of three papers uh, coincidentally came out around the same time and have to do with pain, uh, which is something that in everyday paediatric practice we deal with all the time, how to make the things that we do to children less painful and less traumatic for them. For many years, we've been using local anaesthetic cream for venipunctures and for inserting cannulas. 
the two, uh, at least in the UK, the two most commonly used uh, types of anaesthetic cream are EMLA, which stands for eutectic mixture of local anaesthetic and contains uh, lidocaine, and amethocaine, also known as Amitop, uh, which is another local anaesthetic coming in a gel form. Now, it's already been shown that um, Amitop is quicker and more effective in reducing pain, uh, but the question arose is, does it actually make cannulation easier? So a group did a systematic review of what has already been published on this and did a meta-analysis and looked for evidence of superiority in successful first-time cannulation. They actually only found three studies, having looked at quite a lot, um, and methacaine was only marginally superior, but it wasn't statistically significant, so we can't really make too much of that. So really, uh, the thing that should determine which of the anaesthetic creams we use is how quickly it acts and costs, rather than ease of cannulation. Now, having a urethral catheter put in is perhaps even more traumatic than having a venipuncture, and children really hate it. Many years ago, um, people started using lidocaine gel to be introduced into the urethra in adults. In fact, I remember doing it myself as a trainee. And, um, but this hasn't become routine practice in children. Uh, obviously, catheterization isn't done as commonly, but it arguably is more traumatic in children compared to adults. So they did a trial, and um, they got a group of children who required a catheter sample because they presented with possible urine infections. So these were previously well children presenting acutely. They uh, assessed the pain outcomes using facial expression scores because most of these children were too young to communicate. They found, interestingly, that not only did the lidocaine gel it was no better than the plain lubricant that they were use, using as controls, but they also found that it actually produced higher pain scores during the installation uh, of the gel before they'd even put the catheter in uh, compared to the control gel. The study was, of course, supposed to be blind. Um, they found that it didn't make any difference um, whether it was a boy or a girl or whether there was a genuine UTI or not. So the authors suggest that instead of using any local anaesthetic, non-invasive pain-reducing strategies should be used. Now, quite interestingly, another paper came along that addressed exactly that question as to what these pain-reducing strategies might be. Vaccinations are given to nearly all children, so there's plenty of them out there to do investigations as to whether pain-reducing strategies that don't involve medications are any use. A group of authors also from Canada, some of them the same as in the previous paper, looked uh, systematically at what's been published on this subject. There are quite a lot of papers, but the quality of the research is quite poor. This isn't surprising because if you think about it, it's quite difficult to uh, adequately blind observers as to whether a child is having a distraction method for a painful procedure or not. So one has to take these findings um, with a pinch of salt because of the methodological flaws of some of them. But anyway, they were able to come up with some meaningful conclusions. They tried to distinguish between outcomes of pain, fear and distress and also look at um, different ages, although it's quite difficult to distinguish these things. They found the methods with the best evidence for effectiveness were distraction, either verbally or using uh, a video which uh, could distract the child, and they found this tended to work for distress but less for pain. Music, they found, helped as a distraction for pain, and they found the common practice of getting the child to breathe with a toy, such as blowing bubbles or blowing on a pinwheel to make it spin round, 
actually helped the pain scores. Other techniques that are sometimes used, such as just getting them to breathe fast without a toy or making them cough, didn't seem to work. What I found most interesting was that full suggestion, i.e. repeatedly telling the child that the needle or whatever it is won't hurt, actually makes things worse. Possibly because uh, the children simply are made to become more fearful by people constantly telling them that something won't hurt when it actually will. So they suggest that interventions for vaccine programmes, which is what this uh, study was primarily about, they need to be practical and they need to be usable in settings where there isn't any, there isn't a lot of technology, a lot of people around, and comment that the increasingly ubiquitous iPad that most families seem to have for their children these days might be the easiest and most accessible way of distracting them. Thank you for listening.